Welcome to another Founder to Founder interview from Gun.io, your source for hiring world-class tech talent. Today, Gun.io's CEO and co-founder Teja Yonamandra sits down with Saber Ahmed, founder and tech lead of Zululu, a service that helps connect you to other people with similar interests in your local area. Okay, here's Teja. Well, thank you for for joining today. Um, excited to talk and learn about your role um, as a data scientist at Bridgestone. Um, learn about how you fell in love with um, data science and all that stuff. But maybe a good place to start is just uh, tell us about yourself. Before even I tell like about my um, profession at Bridgestone, I would love to tell like my story, how I came here and how I kind of transition my from career like from different subject to the different kind of area so i originally come from bangladesh and 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 as i said you before like i've been living in tennessee like forever like since i come to the usa <laughs> so you could say me i'm not a u.s citizen i'm a tennessee citizen yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i came to usa in back in 2013 so I went to school at the University of Memphis and I completed my PhD in computational geophysics. Wow. So my goal was to become a professor or teacher because I love teaching and, and still I love teaching, but I ended up in totally different uh, industry setting, but it's a different story. But so during my PhD, my goal was to kind of understand how earthquake happens like what is the physics or mathematics behind this kind of rupture process or failure process when the earthquake happens. So whenever I wanted to study like that sort of kind of things, I got introduced machine learning, computational um, geophysics and parallel programming. And this is how I can apply all of those tools uh, to understand the earthquake. So this is how I got familiar about the machine learning and then artificial intelligence. So after my um, PhD, I got offer from the University of Southern California for the postdoctoral kind of things. Then I refused this offer. So because I thought like, why don't I go to industry first and see the real life implication? Because if I go to like industry, then I'll be able to see whatever I'm gonna make model or whatever I'm gonna make something, I would see the immediate impact the customer's experience or customer's kind of life, right? Well, and I thought like, okay, let's give it a try for a little bit. And if I still do not like it, then still I have the chance to go back to the postdoc or academia, something like this. Well, but it turned out that, okay, I like more corporate world and, and seeing the immediate impact. And then I stayed there in Achivian and I worked there for like three and a half years as a data scientist, so my job was to kind of develop a machine learning solution to detect like real-time fraud because Ashurian was a like insurance company and we did like ton of claims every day. Yeah. One of the challenges was kind of like the, they wanted to automate the entire fraud detection system from rule-based to the machine learning-based solution. So my, so as a machine learning scientist, my goal was to kind of develop machine learning model that can detect fraud on the fly. Mm. Like that means that's the kind of real life challenge, right? Mm. And 
So yeah, so that's kind of like this is how I kind of transition from computational geophysics to the machine learning world. Then I never kind of looked back to this academia and went, never went back to the ArcPay community. That's cool. So prior, so prior to um, starting the PhD program, did you have any familiarity with like some of these tool tools, or was it the first time? Uh, so never ever, but I was familiar with some sort of like programming because even from my childhood, yep. for some reason, I kind of liked programming a lot. Like when I was a kid, like I used to learn like Visual Basic, you know, Visual Basic used okay. to be like hot language, like back then in 20, 2005 or 2003, right? Right. And then I went ahead and kind of learned but myself and I built like smaller software. So this is what I learned, but I didn't have any idea about machine learning or software engineering. How long did it take you to feel comfortable um, like wrapping your mind around machine learning tools just in the context of like your PhD program? A couple of years? I think it was one of my professors who, who reached out to me and told me, hey, Sabir, would you be interested working with me um, in a project that requires some sort of machine learning knowledge? At the time, I had very zero knowledge. Like I didn't have anything other than geophysics. Then I tried to learn like, like, I think it was pretty easy for me to pick up all the kind of mathematics and physics because in geophysics, I got introduced to all the kind of mathematics equations and everything. But whenever I got introduced to machine learning, I thought it's going to be hard, but it didn't take me that much time because I had some prior knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. On the math principles. On the math principle and, 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 and like, like SVD or principal component analysis, we, I already used those techniques in geophysics right. but in different context so uh it didn't it didn't um take that much time to pick up all of these kind of things did do you find like the context of solving business problems let's say fraud detection like is is it as intellectually engaging for you as let's say studying or applying it in the geophysics context like studying earthquakes a absolutely i think um so there is a huge difference between in corporate problem solving versus in the academic problem solving. Yep. So in corporate means industrial problem solving is kind of more of like real life impact. So you have to think a lot of things, but in academia, you don't have to, not necessarily, but you have the option to think about, for example, whenever you detect fraud, you have to think about customer experience. You have to think about companies saving money or companies revenue so for every false positive we make that means we are we are giving hard time a good customer right so we falsely identify that okay a real customer is a, is a fraudulent customer which is kind of bad but in academia i didn't have to think about this not necessarily yeah so, so that's the kind of difference so with this difference it took me a little long time to realize that academic problem versus industrial problem is kind of different. So even though theory behind this, uh, everything is almost the same. So I would apply the exact same algorithm, exact same theory in different places, but context is different. Do you find that in like a corporate problem solving context, like there's the same level of statistical discipline or is it different? Like in terms of, let's say, having the right sample size in terms of like having those principles at play? Or are you guys optimizing for maybe something different? Like, hey, let's get to some directional truth faster and let's make a decision quickly. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like the corporate or industrial problem solving is totally different because as I told you before, you have to think a lot of things. So, no, so for example, say Ashurian problem. Ashurian is an insurance company. And that means it's a financial company. That means we have to follow lots of regulation. Wow. And if I, if I even want to make a model based on neural network, I'm not able to do this because neural network is a black box. So I'm not supposed to make any model based on neural network. Interesting. Yeah. And, and not only this, like they want to make a model that can detect fraud on the fly. So that means I'm limited. What type of algorithms do I have to make? So that means I'm not going to use any algorithm that's going to take a long time to infer. So that means I use like a lighter algorithm compared to the uh, heavy algorithms, even though those heavy algorithms, heavy means like that's going to give you long time to give you the prediction. Got so you have to trade maybe some degree of accuracy for yeah, speed, yeah. especially. Okay, got yeah. you. Okay, that's really interesting. And so, um, what brought you to Bridgestone, and what's the role like there? <laughs> yeah, so Bridgestone is kind of interesting and totally different domain, like insurance to the insurance one spectrum and other spectrum is totally automotive. But the, as I told you before, underlying principles or underlying machine learning algorithms are almost the same, but you apply the same algorithm in a different domain. So the go the reason I came to the Bridgestone because I wanted to see the different area. And that's why I kind of thought, okay, I think it's a good opportunity for me to jump right. Nice. Things, nice. Yeah. So in between Bridgestone and Assurian, you were at a startup, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> tell us about that. How was that like? So this startup actually is my startup. <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I started working during actually back in 2015 when I was a grad student. So being an immigrant and being a non-native English speaker, I found that, okay, so there is no any place to find a common ground people. Like, for example, I wanted to find somebody who can talk in my way or, or see the problem in my way because I'm totally different from different culture. And whenever I come to the university, like, I see I'm an outlier, <laughs> even though there are a ton of, like, people from my society or my culture. But still, I feel like I'm one of the teeny tiny person from different society. Yeah kind of hard to match. So this is how I kind of came to the idea of Jululu that I, I established. So the, the goal or the idea of Jululu is to find people based on your very niche interest and uncommon hobbies. <laughs> so for example, I'm a chess player and I'm also interested in algorithmic trading. How do you find people who has this, this two kind of interest? Like, Traditional search engine like Google or Bing, they wouldn't help you to find those people nearby you because the, the search engine are not meant to find people yep. based on your geography. Yep. Neither the traditional social media like Facebook or, or, or LinkedIn. I do not put like, I'm a mushroom grower <laughs> or I'm a um, Ethiopian food lover. I do not put this interest in my LinkedIn profile or, or Facebook profile. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And even because, the the like dating apps or whatever. Dating, apps, yeah. 
they're not set up to have these dimensions exposed and exactly construct the search off of these. Yeah, yeah totally. But, but but the interesting thing is like if you see a data scientist, for example, in a conference, and at the same time you see this, okay, this data scientist happened to be an algorithmic trader, and this data scientist happened to be a chess player, and you get more excited. Yeah. So that means you get more excited on your hobbies rather than your primary skill set, right? Yes. So, so that means uh, there is some psychology happens all the time. Like whenever I see people like with common interest, not my primary skill set or primary interest, so, but my secondary even tertiary interest. So that's kind of kind of tricked me. Okay, so before why don't you kind of make a platform? Um, and and work on it. So this is how I kind of came came up with the idea, and this is how uh, I started working in my PhD and continued through Azure and Python. That's right. awesome. So how's that going? Are you having fun building it? Um, <laughs> honestly, yes and no. <laughs> so yes means because the problem I think I think it's not my problem. I see whenever I talk to people, it's the problem across like different demographics. Whenever I talk to the older people, they things. It's a very cool because older people are the one they kind of live by themselves alone and they want to find some other people based on their niche interests so that they can talk to each other, they can go meet in person. But whenever I talk to the younger people, they also see the exact same problem to the different point of view. But exact same people like whenever they come to this school, they want to find some other students with the same mind or same interest. Not their lonely but they want to find the same common ground people yeah right? yeah, yeah. So, so 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 it's fun but it's not fun that i'm working by myself and i'm thinking that probably i'm just gonna quit on this idea and start something else <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting it's it's hard to build a product in a company you know it's yeah. not easy what do you like about kind of building your own product and how is it different maybe from day-to-day -day life like in the corporate environment that's a pretty good good question and interesting because whenever you you make your own product you have the 360 de 360 degree freedom to make your own decision like how you want to pivot or how you want to go further along this road and not only this, like you have the total control and you can make decisions very fast, very quick, versus you have to depend on your leader's <laughs> decision in the corporate world. And you have to work on the project that you are assigned to in the corporate world. And another kind of good thing I enjoy, especially in startup kind of thing, like you get to see the people's feedback and you can fine tune your product, getting your feedback, getting feedback from the customers. But you don't have that luxury in the corporate world because the project is fixed and project has some fixed objective and goal already defined, right? Yeah, there are some startup like project in the corporate world, but, but still it has to depend on your leadership voice or something, right? So I I am a startup person and I like build products no matter what like whenever i get time i i just i just do this for myself <laughs> that's true I, the freedom is awesome you yes. know but but you know it's also like 
you have to be disciplined to say no to things too, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, so there, there's a trade-off all the time. Like, uh, there's a trade-off in corporate world. There's a trade-off in a startup world. Yeah, totally. Do you, do you think, like, let's say, what, what do you find more, like, intellectually engaging? Do you find, like, solving, like, big problems at a big company where you're well-resourced and you have a team to support you? Do you find that more stimulating or do you find, like, being able to be really hands-on, develop the product, talking to customers, like, do you find that stimulating, like, at a smaller uh, org or product? Definitely enough. The latter? Okay, yeah. Fair enough. Why? Yeah, yeah. By, by heart, I believe I'm an entrepreneur since my childhood. Yeah. Like, even before I come to uh, USA, I had a small organization in Bangladesh that I run myself. So I established this. It was kind of like some financial kind of thing, but I founded it myself and I had like a couple of users, but I had to leave and come back here. And then when I go to school, I started Zulolo. Now, even I joined to Bridgestone, I always ask my boss or leader that, hey, if you have a new project, it's very new and you want to give it a try, see if this is going to be successful or not, then just assign to me, not the project you already have. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, I I feel like, you know, if you were to take like the average person, people who immigrate to a new country are definitely like in the top quartile of like risk appetite, right? Just generally speaking. So I feel like, you know, so it's funny. I talked to my parents and they're like, oh, it seems like really risky to like start a business. And I'm like, well, you guys move to a new country without really speaking the language. Like that's a substantial amount of risk, maybe even more risk than I would take, you know? Exactly, right. And so, yeah, it makes sense to me that you feel like the entrepreneurial path is like exciting and that matches like your risk appetite for sure. Um, yes. So you mentioned that you like algorithmic trading. Talk, talk to us about that. Like, what do you like about it? And, you know, what are, like, what are you working on there? <laughs> so it's funny, like, I'm the people who is interested on everything. Yep, same. <laughs> so same. algorithmic trading is one of the niche area that I found, okay, probably down the road, I'll be working on this area. So, okay, so I'm a very stock market fan, and I love to study, and I have investment, some stocks and and i try to follow stock market or market trend or these kind of things and i trade and i used to be a day trader nice. <laughs> and I, of course i lost ton of money and yeah. I, I i got ton of i earned ton of money from the day trading and i feel like why don't i kind of automate everything because now that i i got my hands on problem in like manually trading and everything and everything. So I feel like there is a pattern in trading. Yeah. Like not pattern in kind of like when the market is going to up and, and down, but there's a pattern in trading, right? Right. And and machine learning is all about kind of pattern recognition, right? So I thought like why don't I kind of use my skill set into a trading problem and see if this is helpful or not. So, so this is where I like started working on algorithmic trading and building my own algorithms and testing it and 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 in real life. I haven't I haven't tried my algorithm in real life yet, but still like I'm just kind of making algorithm and testing it myself at home. 
and I have a deep learning GPU workstation at my home. So this is a good advantage. It's a very good thing. So I use it all the time. That so like how how does like it work to set up like a robot to trade for you? Like do these trading platforms have like APIs that you can access? Yes. And then oh yeah, of course. Like you have that. Interesting. I had no idea because people would talk about it and I never really like <laughs> oppressed, you know, because oh, my strategy is I just put my money in Vanguard funds and I leave it alone. You know, that's <laughs> So, so algorithmic trading is kind of like the more of like dynamic, like whenever market change, yeah. your, your algorithm act on it. So for example, say, say Apple, okay? Yep. So you, you your favorite stock is Apple and you wanted to trade on Apple, then how do you do this? So for example, today, Apple announced that they're gonna have some groundbreaking product. So right. for, and of course the market is gonna react very positively, right? And I want to buy right at this time so that I my my Apple stock gets better. So how do I do this? So you automate the entire kind of thing. So you have your algorithm that listens to your market. Right. And you have your algorithm that listens to your news news kind of thing or portal everything. And your algorithm also knows like past pattern of how Apple can have been working in past like two months or last one month. So you combine all of this kind of information and then your algorithm makes a decision. Is it the right time to buy or is it the right time to sell? Right. So so this is all about an algorithm trading. That's cool. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I had no idea that you can just access like these trading platforms, APIs and make Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a ton of ton of platforms out there like Alpaca, Weebull, they just kinda give you access to That's, the data. Yeah. That's cool. Do you like reading biographies of people or or I used to, but I read a book. So currently I'm just reading a book. I'm not quite sure if you're seeing this. It's called The Prisoners of Geography. Tim Marshall is a very good writer. Cool. Okay. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. So this book is um uh about like geography and a country and the power <laughs> in the entire world politics. Yeah, that's interesting. I um I read a book a long time ago called Germ Guns, Germs and Steel. Ah. If you like books on history and different ways to think about like the modern world based on like, I don't know, path dependence from history, things like that, that might be a good one too. But I will check out this book. <laughs> um, I love this book, yes. Yeah, that's that's sweet. Um, the, re the reason why I ask is I wonder if there are like some traders that you follow that you like, um, you know, anything like that. So, yeah, so there is a one guy, he lives in, uh, uh, so he's a, our generation guy and he's way, way more better than me. So I usually like, his name is Ricky. So he's based in, I believe, uh, Arizona, somewhere in Arizona. So I... I, he's not a big like guy, not like Warren Buffett, but he's the day trader and successful day trader. Yeah. How much capital do you need to have allocated to day trading to generate sufficient returns to justify the mental time investment in that? Oh, well, it all depends. <laughs> so, so for the early day trader, like for example, if I'm very novice and new here, I wouldn't recommend to invest much 
but it all depends on your experience and something. Even experienced day, day trader lose a lot of money. Yeah. Millions and millions. Yeah. So it's all, it's all about kind of ex experimenting on trial and error, like see what does work and what does not work. Yeah. And it's all about emotion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. And managing that emotion, right? Yeah. So you, have to, you have to manage your emotion. Yeah. If you can do this, I think you could be a very good millionaire based on your trade. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And and also, I think it depends on like your day-to-day -day job opportunity cost, yeah. right? Like if you have a lot of opportunity costs, then you have to risk a lot of capital in day trading to justify like the marginal investment in day trading versus your job. That's something that I think about too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, you have a big nut to cover. Yeah, that's cool. Um, what would be your advice for, let's say, fellow data scientists that are looking to, you know, move up in their career and let's say have like this panoply of interests and like they, because I feel like most data scientists are like math nerds. And if you're a math nerd, you probably are into trading, right? And you're into probably building like your own thing because like you're probably sophisticated uh, and interested in like leveraging your knowledge, right? In those ways, what would be your advice to other data scientists and managing their career versus other passions and professional interests that they may have? I think that's a pretty good question. Like my, my, so my one particular advice to the fellow data scientists is to kind of, if you really want to pursue in data science or machine learning, I'd highly recommend you to know the underlying, the roots of any algorithm that you work. So for example, if I, I have been hiring I've been interviewing a lot of folks like in my past careers, but I see they lack like underlying foundations, which is kind of, uh, because if you have the good foundation, you can make whatever you want. Right. Potential is totally endless. So even if you do not have job, at least you can make a lot of money without even job, just yeah. because you have the foundation and you can take different problems in different way, right? So my advice is to kind of know better, like whatever you're trying to working on. Do, do you mean the foundations as in the math, like the math principles or the tooling? Both like math, because the tool is also important to like, you have to know the tools because you're, you're going to use it. Right. So different tools has the different underlying principles. Right. So if you do not know the principles, then you do not actually basically know nothing about anything. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Where can people find you or your startup or whatever you're working on next on the internet? So, so yeah, so my next journey or my next kind of thing would be probably build startup or build anything based on LLM or machine learning, because I believe this is where my expertise are in. So then why shouldn't I leverage that? Right. Uh, I like, the LLM concept and generative AI. So yeah. Yeah. Can so people can search you on LinkedIn. Uh nice. Do you have a personal website or portfolio that you want people to go to? Uh unfortunately I don't have any personal website, but LinkedIn is the only one that you can reach out to me. Awesome. I think that I think the community will really love this one because I feel like, you know, a lot of people at least tell us like, hey, we want to hear from people who like 
are working and building something on the side and thinking through and maybe just, you know, have a little bit of experience and pushing their career forward. So, um, yeah, this will be a good one. So appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to the Founder to Founder podcast powered by Gun.io's Frontier Network. We release a new episode every Thursday morning, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you stream your music. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. You can follow us online at The Frontier Pod or drop us a line at team at gun.io to get in touch about hiring world-class tech talent. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast, and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.